Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church. I'm very glad you're with us today and that we get to spend some time together. It's good to see each and every one of you on this bitter, bitter cold day. Um, thanks for braving the cold. Here, for those of you who are in the West Auditorium, I've just come from the East Auditorium. For those of you who are there, I'm very glad you're with us. And then for those of you who are braving the cold at home and the COVID at home, we've, I'm, I, that, I'm, there's no judgment in that. I'm just kind of wish I was with you, to be honest, but there you go. Um, we're very glad you're with us today. And um, let's spend some time together looking at some theology today and some scripture. But before we do that, I'd like to pray with you that God's grace would uh, come into our lives and we would experience his work within us Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes, Lord, I pray that um, you would graciously interact with us. Help us to listen to your word and to your um, something deep within us, God. Speak to that. Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, if we've not met before, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us, as I mentioned. And I'm proposing we do something a little bit different with our sermon time together today. We are a congregation that, for decades, um, has usually uh, exegetes, if you will, and, re and reviews one particular passage of Scripture each week. And I, I love to see the way in which that has played out in your lives. I'll see people with their Bibles in their laps reading along or following along on their smartphones, and that's all really good. And that approach to weekly biblical exegesis, we say this one particular passage, how does it apply to our lives? That is the bedrock of our common spirituality. I absolutely admire it within you. But for today, though, given the present setting of our church, I want you to simply listen Listen and contemplate and hear of my heart for this congregation and specifically for you as an individual. In other words, what we're going to do today is I want to see if I can give you a theological arc of a topic within Scripture um, that is a follow-up to last weekend's message and the community-wide announcement regarding um, my upcoming retirement, now I need, which is going to be in 17 months. I'm going to no longer be the lead pastor of the church. And Brian Talty has accepted the elders team. We've issued a call to him to take over my role in 17 months from now. I want to tell you, we're not going to talk about this every weekend for the next 17 months, all right? We're going to get, basically, we're done this week. Um, uh, we're going to take a little bit more look at some leadership things again next week. But here's what I want you to be planned for, that... Um, when Lent starts and we get ready to run into the story of uh, Jesus' um, arrival in Jerusalem, we're going to spend six or seven weeks leading into Easter, and we're going to unpack the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. What did the Hebrew people, what did the Israelite people say about the coming Messiah? And we're going to spend some weeks looking at Jesus in the Old Testament and how does his story fulfill some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. So that's coming and we'll get past all this other business stuff. But for today, let's, uh, I want you to see if you can get inside my head and my heart regarding this transition that is coming up particularly from a theological position, point of view. And to, so to start that conversation, maybe um, the story of a river out of the Czech Republic would be helpful for you. The River Elba starts in the Czech Republic and over a length of some 700 miles, it winds its way through that nation, goes through Germany, and spills out into the uh, North Sea, just north of Hamburg. 
And it's a long river, it's a wide river, it's been, it's been used for centuries for all kinds of commercial enterprises. For example, if you were a farmer, say, 200 years ago, 400 years ago, you would have been reliant on what happened in that, on that river for your own livelihood. It was the place of irrigation for water. It was where people could water their animals, and, and as the crops grew, they could feed their families and so forth. And so for, for centuries, that has been one of the key things that has been the result of the Elbow River flowing through those nations, 700 miles long. But what if you were a farmer, say, 200 years ago or 400 years ago, and the river was to dry up? What would happen to you? What would happen to your crops? What would happen to your animals? What would happen to your family? Wouldn't you eventually, it all die, right? You'd starve. However, in the midst of that drought where the water drops low, what if somewhere along the line you got some warning just before it got really bad? Before you, you were gonna be in great difficulty if there was some way that somebody could say, hey, it's bad, but if it gets much worse, you're gonna starve. Well, that's exactly what is in the River Elba. In 2018, that area of the nation of the Czech Republic went through a drought, and as the water level went down, big rocks, not right at the riverbed, but close to the riverbed, began to appear, 12 of them. They're named hunger stones. And centuries ago, as a matter of fact, back in 1616 is the oldest hunger stone. When the river dropped down that low in the past, the people of those days chiseled messages into the bottom of those rocks. It's kind of like if you're driving down the road and you see on the back of a car, it says, if you can see this, you're too close, back up. That's basically what these ancient 400-year-old messages are, and as a matter of fact, the one you're looking at is written in German, and it says, if you can see this, cry. Here's why. You're about to die, unless you do something very quickly. So as the water's gone down, get ready. It's about, life is about to be extremely tenuous. As I stated last week, this pastoral transition has been the focus of a lot of prayer and discussion. My fellow elders and I, we took on a study project to begin to contemplate. Um, we, we did all kinds of studies, and we came across story after story of congregations, some in our own city, others across the country. These congregations did not pay attention to the water receding in the life of their church. They were in, the ones we were looking at were ones that were long-term pastorates were being enjoyed by the congregation, similar to what you and I experienced, where we've done a lot of life together. And these congregations with long-term pastorates didn't plan for the future. The comfort of the flowing water of the familiar, um, sort of brought an, it brought about an unwillingness to explore change, and it eventually brought an end to congregational effectiveness. The hunger stones, if you will, of congregational life appeared after it was too late and the water of ministry stopped flowing. And many people in those congregations cried and in fact, many of those congregations died. And seriously, beloved, seriously, this is a story that I've discovered is repeated across our nation time after time, congregations die because they don't pay adequate attention to the future. 
I said, we're not going to deal with this every weekend, but just for today, let's, let's think about what the future is for our church. That on your behalf, we've chosen to make a change now. What, when? While all is well, while the, while the church's story of ministry is in a good place, you can think about it this way. In other words, while the, while the water of ministry is flowing well and full, let's figure out what it's going to be like to keep that flowing. So this transition is about you. It's about your children. And it's about our congregation's ministry in this community and around the globe. See, our congregation, First Christian Church, that we understand that we are always on mission. We have a task. We have a responsibility. And that responsibility goes beyond one generation. It goes beyond one staff. It goes beyond one pastor for 100, 187 years. This church has brought Jesus Christ's tangible touch to this community. That was the case before I arrived. It will be the case long after I'm no longer the pastor, you know, the lead pastor. Why? Because we as a church, we are a people who we say, what is the call of Scripture? We take all of Scripture very seriously, and we see Scripture as our authority. We see Scripture as our guide. And whatever, whatever is modeled in the Bible, we, stri- we strive to apply that to our life and work together. And so in that regard, I, I want to give you, as I said, the kind of an arc of Scripture regarding leadership development and leadership transition. Maybe we could ask this sort of question. What does the Bible, how does the Bible describe moments like this? And what, what is displayed in Scripture? What model is displayed in Scripture that we should say, okay, this is the way in which we should approach this time. And what is the Bible, what are the models within Scripture of succession and one generation following another? First off, let me say straight away, every leader, unsuccessful and successful leaders. Every leader faces an end date of leaving. There's a point where you say, no one gets to stay in any vocation forever. As a matter of fact, within pastoral ministry, William Vanderblom has put it this way, that every pastor is an interim pastor. And the sooner that us pastors like me recognize that all leaders are interim, the more likely they are to build a church-wide culture of leadership development. And I'm aware that my tenure at First Christian Church has been longer than the average tenure of all the 43 pastors who came before me. Yet, I have to assume I'm not the last primary leader of this church. There will be more coming. And our leadership and develop, our leadership pipeline and development has effectively brought us to this time of transition, if you will, from one interim pastor to the next. I'm the present interim pastor, long-term interim pastor. Brian is the next interim pastor. It's why we have things like the Arts Academy. We're saying to our kids, how can you be used in worship in the future? It's why we have uh, kids' discipleship. It's why we have adults involved in mentorship. We're looking and seeing how could God use you in leadership in the days ahead. What's the pipeline? This understanding of temporary leadership is evident in the life of our church, And it's seen in the lives of successful leaders in Scripture. In both the Old and the New Testaments, each successful biblical leader passed off, if you will, the proverbial baton to the next person behind them. I mean, think think about, um, for example, Moses. You may be familiar with Moses. Um, Moses was the the Old Testament's creator and developer of um, 
ancient Israel's theology, the way in which they governed, the polity of their nation was put together by, by Moses. And um, he led the nation through all sorts of challenges and triumphs. And his work basically defined what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant for a nation to follow God. I mean, yes, with God's help, he did all that. And it was really God-leading. But it was, Moses was the human interest, in, instrument through which that all flowed. Yet, even he came to the point where he said, I, I can't do this anymore. I mean, here's a man who's leadership qualities and quotient was just off the charts. And yet he prayed this, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, God appoint someone else, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses somehow or other knew his tenure was coming to an end And he passes off the baton to Joshua. And when Joshua became the leader, I mean, think about this. Moses led the nation for 40 years, and he tried and tried and tried to get them into the promised land. He could never quite get them there. And he gets them all the way to the edge of the river. There's the promised land on the other side of the river. And he says, I'm not getting you there. I I can't pull it off. And and Joshua comes along and um, has stood by Moses for years, and now he's the next generation. And Joshua continues Israel's national quest. The nation moves into better days. They took control of the promised land. Joshua adapted Moses' vision and dream of a nation in a homeland worshiping only one God. That's what they got to do. He did it while implementing his own strategies and plans. In other words, there is a moment when mature leadership must say, I have done enough. And wise leaders prepare the next generation for leaders, for leadership. It's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament... <laughs> There's a, a story of where um, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is um, basically, apart from Jesus, we'd say the primary New Testament character. That's fair, the, the writer of most of the theology that we would ascribe to as Christians apart from Jesus. And um, he's got a young man who travels with him, uh, starts traveling with Paul when he's probably a teenager, and over a number of years, they develop a relationship, and, they develop, and Paul plants this church in Ephesus, and he comes to a point where he says to Timothy, hey, that church needs a pastor, and he sends Timothy to Ephesus and says, I can't be the pastor there, but you go do that, and there, there are these letters back and forth of him basically saying, you know what, um, say what I've said, tell others what I've said, and then tell them to tell others, and so this young man becomes the pastor of Paul's um, congregation. And if you would think about leadership transitions, perhaps the greatest example is Jesus himself. He modeled transitions in leadership when he purposely assigned the responsibility of his ministry originally to his 12 disciples and the people who were around him, and then ultimately to you and me through the Great Commission, the Great Commission to say, go and tell people about this story of who Jesus is. The Great Commission absolutely involves us as we carry on Jesus' ministry. I mean, I mean we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus, right? And yet, we're still doing the same thing he asked us to do. We may do it in a new way, in a new day, in a new culture, but we're doing what Jesus asked us to do. And if successful ministry transition is best described, friends, as an intentional transfer of leadership, authority, and power, then I would assess Jesus did very well. Jesus Church, those of you who are followers of Jesus today, we are carrying out his ministry. We, together with the, with the force of, the, of the, the rest of the church, 
By God's grace and by God's power, we have changed the course of human history. And that occurred through Jesus' intentional transfer of his power and leadership and authority to us, his followers. Maybe you could think of it this way. I, um, I usually step out of the pulpit, you may be aware, every July. So preparing a sermon takes a certain amount of time each week. And so what I do is I say, I'm not going to preach in July. And I'll take that time and also some, some time in the office and, and set up an office away from this building for July. And in July of each year, I'm gonna, I, I think, out, think about what's the narrative, what's the, and pray about what's the, What's the, where do we want to go next year with sermons? And so like, for example, say if, I, if it was July 2016, I would be um, gone from the office every day, still working, but preparing the, the storyline of sermons for 2017. So it's actually six months and, tw- and 18 months out from, <clears throat> pardon me, from that July. So, in recent years, as I've been doing that, and you know, like, so what we're doing right now is what I looked at in July of 2020. I mean, there's changes and so forth, but you get the idea. In recent years, in addition to kind of thinking about those sermons, I've also been spending some personal time studying um, the life of King David. David, so you go back 2,000 years to Jesus, go back another 1,000 years before that, you get to King David. David was, uh, when David was the king of Israel, Israel was at its height. They ruled the world, so to speak. They were the powerhouse mili- with their military. They were a powerhouse with their economy. Their uh, faith as in Judaism, it was, it was ruling the world, if you will. And um, he had this phenomenal leadership abilities. Took his nation from a fledgling group to this powerhouse within, within, his, within his leadership and his lifetime. As I was reading through the, and thinking about David's life, there's a scene in Acts chapter 13, a thousand years after he's dead. The Apostle Paul, again, is preaching to the people in Antioch, and he makes a rather offhanded but telling observation about David. He says that David passed Israelites' leadership to his son Solomon, and he describes what was brand new to me last summer. This idea of generational limits of David's leadership, he says. He says this in Acts 13. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried. He's dead. Cool running. Is he a dead man? Yeah, he's dead. All right. I got to tell you, when, that, when I saw that, It was really emotional for me last July because it's a biblical truth that I think we often overlook, generational leadership. Careful observers would understand that one person's leadership is for one generation. And then the leadership baton must be passed to the next generation. And we are at that point in the life of our church. My generation must pass our leadership responsibilities and powers to the next generation. Not because we can't do it. Now, I've got lots of energy and lots of ideas, but I don't want, to, I don't want the water to recede. I want to do it while, I want to make certain that we as a congregation think about this while all is well. Now, I will tell you, that passage of Scripture says David had served God's purpose in his own generation. He fell asleep. I'm not planning the fall asleep part. 
Are you a dead man? I'm not planning to do that, okay? I'm planning, I've got lots of ideas of things that, I, that God would call me to do. But I'm mindful of the principle in play. That David's responsibilities were for his generation. There was a moment when his son Solomon became the king and national leader. And what we have there is a model of one generation to the next generation. And I think it leads to a rhetorical question. And that is this. Is wise leadership best proven by a leader's ability and willingness to give up power and authority? You know, who are we kidding? I'm the lead pastor, so I mean, hopefully I don't wield it on, in a bad way, but I, there's some re- authority and responsibility that comes with that, if I may. You get that. But wise leadership, is it best proven by a leader's ability and willingness to give up power and authority that comes with the office? and pass it to the next generation at the right moment? It'd be, it'd be my contention that the answer to that is yes. And for Christian leaders, and particularly for those of us in pastoral ministry, our willingness to step aside at the best moment, sometimes at the pinnacle, if you will, of our vocational ministry, I believe it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a demonstration of our ongoing trust in God's plan. And surely my willingness to trust God's sovereignty is more important. Hear me here. It's far more important than how many years I stand behind the churches or sit behind the church's pulpit. Or how many years I answer the button when the light lights up that says lead pastor and pick up the phone. After all, if Jesus Christ is the very real son of God, knew that his ministry success was guaranteed by passing it on to others. And we must follow his example. Jesus expected his disciples to expand his ministry beyond his own human capabilities. Think about it this way. When we get to this, this study in Lent, one of the weeks we're going to look at is what does it mean when uh, the Old Testament says that the Messiah is, going to be, is called the Son of God. And we're going to look at what it, the implications are of that. And when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we know that, but he also, the Son of God, came in human flesh. So in other words, he could only be in one place at one time. He couldn't be both here and in Zimbabwe today at the same time. The Holy Spirit can, but Jesus in the human flesh could not. And so Jesus in his own human capabilities, limited, could not do the kind of ministry that he assigned to his followers to do. We took on that earthly mission to greater influence and to more places than he could humanly manage. He's our ultimate example. And failure to follow Jesus' example in this is arrogant. It truly is. It speaks of what Hilary Tors noted in the fourth century. Every Christian must be constantly vigilant against irreligiosa solicitudo pro deo. Aren't you pleased with the way in which I said that? me being the Latin scholar that I am not. What is that? It's a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. When we think we've got to do it, no, God is at work, not you and me. We're his instruments. An attempt to regulate or direct God's sovereignty has occurred in far too many congregations. And I would assess particularly in the lives of vocational pastors who are serving in long-term pastorates. My observation is this. Sometimes those of us in long-term pastorates, we simply cannot let go. 
It's not that we like the power. It's not that we like the authority. That's not the issue. That's, that's, that, with that comes a lot of responsibility. Instead, we sometimes would think that God's power or work or mission can only come through one vessel. And I, friends, friends, I have no desire to pursue such arrogance. I trust God to use the next generation of leaders for heaven's best plans in a leadership style and manner that probably is going to be different than mine, but in a way that exceeds any so-called success that God might have generated through me. Now, during the last week, um, people have been very gracious to me and have said some really kind things um, with gracious affection. They've come to me or sent me emails and they've said, I'm really glad for you, Wayne. I'm glad for you and Les. Um, this is going to be good for you. This is going to be good for the church. I'm, you know, I haven't, I haven't heard from anybody. Go, you're crazy. We're going to let that guy lead? No, I haven't heard anything like that. Or, <laughs> thankfully, right, Brian? Um, but I have had a couple people say to me, well, Wayne, congratulations. But Brian has some really big shoes to fill. I've been waiting all week to show you my socks. What do you think? <laughs> I've worn them especially just for you. This is my shoe. I wear a size 10 and a half. Not very big shoes to fill. This is Brian's shoe. You get the point, right? It's not about the size of the shoes. It's about this congregation's future. The coming months are going to bring all sorts of changes, right? They're also going to bring lots of prayer. And I'm glad that we are a church that um, says that we'll pray through change. You'll recall we have four core values. First of all, we're a church that, man, what Scripture says we do. We're a congregation that is very concerned about the community of the church and those in the community outside the church. We're anxious to hear from the Holy Spirit. All those three things are very theological in, in basis, if you would think about it this way. But you know what else we do as a church? We've said this for years. We embrace change. As a matter of fact, uh, we have a particular way of, of um, displaying our ability to embrace change. You know what it is around here? How's it go? Can I see it here? In, right? In the, in the east, can you do this with us? Everybody's doing it in the west, right? Everybody's doing it in the west. And those of you at home, are you doing this? This is who we are. We say, change is coming. All right. We'll get our arms around it and we'll figure it out. From a personal perspective, know this. I'm praying for Brian's changes that are coming in his life. I'm praying for Brian and his family. I'm praying and I'm getting my arms around, hey, these changes are coming to my family, to Leslie and me. <laughs> Friends, I'm doing this for you too. Get my arms around the fact that God is calling us to change again. Now, I'm aware that um, 
the Taltys and the Kents and a few other leaders within the church, we've had a long time. We, we started talking specifically about this in January of last year and started putting, we're going to let the congregation know in January of 2021. So we've had basically a year to get our minds and our, our arms around this idea of change. And yet for you, some of you, most of you here today, you've had about 10 days. So I'm not going to talk about this a lot in the coming months. I'm going to get your, give you a chance to catch up with us emotionally and spiritually and just get your head around it. But I do want to do this today, that perhaps the best way in which we can help all of us come to the same page and the same understanding that God's working among us would be to, to be people of prayer. So um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to pray. And uh, how I'm going to invite you to pray is this way, that from here in the West Auditorium, streaming into the East and online today, uh, the worship team in the West is going to lead our entire congregation in worship and prayer. And so we're going to sing a song together, and there are going to be moments of prayer time in the middle of that song that I'll lead you through. And we'll see what God does in our lives together. Let's pray right now. Lord, you um, have done a lot in the life of our church. We are not the same people that we were six months ago, Lord. We're not the same people that we were six years ago. We're not the same church that we were six decades ago. Throughout all of that, God, we have leaned into you for your work and for your changes to be made evident within us and in the responsibilities that we have to our community and to this world. So to, this, to that end, Lord, I pray for each individual in the life of my church. And I say, Lord, my church, not from a perspective of ownership, but of belonging. I pray for each family and each individual, God. I pray that the days ahead are full of your grace and your power and full of an understanding that you are leading us in ways that we can only begin to imagine. And Lord, in these next few moments, hear our prayer, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So across the entire congregation, inviting you to stand. Let's be people of worship. Let's be people of prayer. I invite you to sing and pray along. All the worries of this world I will lay them at your feet For perfect peace, your perfect peace. All the loved ones I hold dear, all my hopes and dreams, and all my fears, I will choose to trust your name. Lord of 
would you pray with me? I'm going to lead you in prayer, and then um, you're going to respond with a prayer. They're going to be on the screens for you to see, okay, here in the West and East and at home. We invite you to follow along. Lord God, for our future, for our church, for our community and our nation, and for our world, we're going to say, God, that we place our trust in you. Would you pray with me? Lord, hear our prayers. We We place place our trust trust in you. And God, we ask that you would give the leaders of each generation, particularly today in the life of our church, give those leaders godly wisdom and integrity. Lord, hear our prayers. We We place place our trust trust in you. And God, history, time after time, history tells us the story of your unfailing faithfulness. And we lean into that faithfulness. And Lord, I'm I'm gonna declare, you are sovereign, you're in charge, and we seek to follow your will and your ways. Lord, hear our prayers. We place our trust in you. I will take you at your word Jesus, you have taken hold of me All my life is in your hands You are my strength You are my strength I will look up For there is none above God of Israel, we declare together today, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You're the one God who keeps your covenant of love with your servants. You keep your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. By the power of your spirit, God, help us always to walk wholeheartedly in your ways. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
friends, I want to say thank you for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to have you here at First Christian Church. If you want to know a little bit more about our church, check out the church's website, firstdecatur.org, firstdecatur.org. If you'd like to know about how to learn some more about Jesus Christ, we'd love to have a chat with you about that. Reach out to us by all means and see what we can learn together. In the meanwhile, for all of us, um, this is what we get to do this week. We get to do what we do every week. We get to say that, hey, this week I'm going to figure out how to be a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ with every step of every day. And I'm going to do it by growing, and by serving, and doing it together with God's people. So, have a great week. May the peace and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And may it be a great week. God bless you. Amen.